0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from episode 42, which focused on the role of fibroblast growth factors, or FGFs, play in the body and how FGF agents might fare as Nash pharmacotherapy once approved. The conversations do not follow the order of the episode itself. This conversation focuses mostly on the opening and closing of the podcast. In the opening, Arun Sanyal and Louise Campbell kicked off by discussing health systems and Nash policy in India and the UK, respectively. We include one question from the middle from Louise about screening fail rates, after which we share the group's final answer about what is likely to change over the next few years as this drug class comes to market. Arun and Steven are brilliant at explaining complex concepts simply. Listen twice or three times if you must, but you will walk away with knowledge you did not start with. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups.
1: Roger Green. The two
0: countries in the world that have the most interesting and advanced medical policy on NASH right now, depending upon how you look at it, are either India or England. And Arun is integrally involved with a lot of work that goes on in India. You want to take just a second and talk about some of that?
1: Arun Sanyal.
2: India interestingly enough is one of the first countries in the world to have a policy a national policy related to fatty liver disease beginning to integrate it with type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease to take a more holistic approach to the problem. You know one of the things we lose sight of is the fact that type 2 diabetes cardiovascular disease chronic kidney disease diabetes related blindness and even neurocognitive decline which in simply uh, simple words is sort of age-related mental dysfunction, many of these things are actually linked to common biology, which of course also occurs in people with fatty liver disease. And it's all happening in the same patient. So while the medicine and the knowledge has developed in a siloed fashion across multiple specialties, they all come together in the same patient. So in a patient-centric way, we need to think about the burden of diagnostic testing and therapeutics and try to find ways to to make it easier for the patient not only to find the treatment that they need, but also to reduce the overall burden of medical care, and that includes diagnostics as well as therapeutics. This is a big part of the focus. There are statewide programs also going on in India, such as one in West Bengal with a big focus on rural populations whose needs are rather different than urban populations that may not be applicable in the West to the same degree. But I'd love to hear Louise or somebody else's experiences about what's happening in okay okay
0: so louise why don't you take a second and do that and then we'll jump in
3: louise campbell It's slightly different for me. I'm not in mainstream NHS anymore. What we are trying to do is get a little bit more coordinated with the pathways. And I think we discussed Jeff Lazarus' article the other week showing some really good examples of healthcare and processes for NAFLD and NASH. And then last week we had the report by the British Liver Trust that basically showed that less than 40% of any of the primary care areas actually use any form of pathway at all. So although we can highlight excellent practice in six or seven really good areas. And I said it on the podcast with that, those areas have developed from liver units, so highly specialised units with an entire team who can put this in. It's not just implementing it because you can have access to it, which I think it sounds like the Indian mechanism might be more fitting for putting in new processes. So we've still got a long way to go, but we are getting there. We just need to share that practice or have other people invest in what's seen as really good practice because it saves money and helps patient pathways. So that's where our strength is. We've shown that it works, but only in small areas.
0: We're going to leave this subject for today because we've got lots of ground to cover, but it should be noted we are are going to come back to this again. I'd like to start spending more of our time. There's been a really good response I think to the last, well to, to Jeff's episode and people are excited about the episode that will be posted on Wednesday about the multidisciplinary call to action. So we're going to be coming to these kinds of topics and I think looking at India in particular and the UK second for the reason Louise just mentioned, the spread between having good processes and getting them implemented are one of the things we're going to be spending some time on in the next few months and hopefully Arun you'll come back and join us for some of that. Just
3: really enjoying listening to these three guys making it sound under Understandable, because sometimes I read these pieces and it just goes way over with the science. But the one thing I was just thinking of there, you, when you were talking about the FGF receptors, is there a difference in these with different ethnicities and the breakdowns? When you described you can trigger sugar cravings or you, you can address some of that with them, is there any work done on do we have different types or
2: different numbers? That's a stupid question, I know, but I just wondered. That is a fantastic question. I got to tell you that I am not aware of anyone having done an in-depth race-by-race you know, something that's really, truly very rigorous. There's some data that the FTF-21 response in African-Americans may be less than in Caucasians. I remember seeing that at some point some years ago, but I'm not aware of recent literature doing a sort of a systematic in-depth analysis of this. There's probably more data on comparing primates to humans than within human by race or ethnicity.
3: I had a question to add when I read the paper, Stephen, I think we've discussed on the podcast considerably about failure rates and the difficulties recruiting to trial. Was there a particular difficulty recruiting to this? Because the failure rate was very high. Was it COVID-induced? Was there, was, was there something specific? I think 267 screen failed out of 356.
1: Stephen Harrison. Yeah, that's the problem we have with every trial in NASH. The screen fail rates are running around 70 to 80%. And it's higher, it's closer to the 80% when you have to go through three different gates to get approval for randomization. So those gates are very simply you sign consent, you draw labs and you can screen fail at that point. You go to MRI, you can screen fail at MRI. And then you go to liver biopsy and you can screen fail there. When you add each of those screen fails up, it actually comes out to 70 to 80%. So, I don't think it's anything unique to this particular mechanism of action. It's just how we design the trials. Remember, we can use fiber scan cap as a pre-screen modality for MRI and we've done very well at reducing screen fail rates on MRI down to around 15 to 20% and and we've done pretty good at our baseline screen fail rate on labs and consent. That comes in around 20 to 25%. Where we've had our biggest hiccup is on liver biopsy interpretation, saying yes, no, particularly to the presence or absence of ballooning. And Arun and I could talk for another three hours about the complexity surrounding that. But as it is as long as we have a histopathologic requirement for entry into trials, our screen fail rates are going to remain relatively high. Final question. Pick the one you want to answer. Either how do you believe
0: FGF... The normal question, by the way, is what have you heard in the last hour that surprised you or may have changed how you thought about anything? But the second question here is how do you believe FGF21s will be used five to seven years from now? What might be approved in that time and what do you expect the utilization to look like? Uh, brave one, go first.
2: So the way I see it is that the future of the field is in a more integrated and holistic view of fatty liver disease, combining cardiovascular, morbidity, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, et cetera, all together under a larger umbrella of metabolic ill health, and trying to find therapies where a single agent can improve multiple end organs simultaneously. And keeping that concept in mind, we know that GLP-1s have already been shown to improve in type, type 2 diabetics with high-risk features, all-cause mortality, cardiovascular outcomes, etc. chronic kidney disease as well. SGLT2 is not far behind them, although their cardiovascular benefit profile is a little different than GLP-1s. And so if you look at the practice guidelines for type 2 diabetes, they're already changing, and GLP-1s and SGLT2s are becoming much more mainstream than they used to be. And I suspect that if the GLP-1s the semaglutide data read out, positive on their phase three. A lot of people who manage patients with fatty liver disease are going to do an initial triage and identify people who are stage three or less than stage three. And if it's less than stage three, they'll get treated with a metabolic drug. And, you know, if FGF21 also eventually shows all the benefits of GLP-1s, then we'll have to see which one comes out ahead. But right now, based on the evidence that we have today, GLP-1s would be your starting drug for that population. Now, it may be that if GF21s show a significant antifibrotic benefit, then for people who are stage 3, who are on the verge of getting into cirrhosis or those who already have compensated cirrhosis, in that population, you may start with a combination where you would have a drug which has significant antifibrotic effect on top of a drug that is a very potent metabolic drug. So that's how I see things playing out in the future. It will be combos, one size will not fit all. For early stage disease, a metabolic drug, for people at the cusp of progression, combos, and for those who already have cirrhosis, maybe primarily an antifibrotic drug, but then using metabolic drugs to maintain remission once you achieve remission.
1: Stephen, why don't you go next? Yeah, well, with, with a wrap-up like that, there's really not a lot to add. You said everything I would have said. The only thing I would add to that, and that is a big asterisk behind uh, these FGF21s, is their impact on fibrosis. I mean, if the data we've seen from the balance trial and and cohort C hold up that makes this compound a game changer just because of its ability to modulate fibrosis. That would potentially put it ahead of a of a GLP-1, assuming that it also has continued impact on glycemic control and atherogenic lipids. But everything else, and, and so I agree with everything. I just wanted to add that little comment on fibrosis.
0: Louise, comment question.
3: I just enjoyed listening to these two guys smash it and on the discussion, and really enjoyed it and I think the only thing I was going to add to that was as we go out into the future I think the mechanism of delivery won't be dissimilar to viral hepatitis C in the fact that a lot of patients with hep C had no symptoms and we had to convince them and support them into interferon therapies. There is a lot of strength in hepatology whereby we can deliver those sort of mechanisms in patients. If it's as exciting as it sounds looking at the side effect profile and everything so far it's a very good product and I i can't wait to see the next sets of the trials so keep smashing it
0: (laughs) i think my one sentence takeaway is not having appreciated all of the different ways that an fgf 21 has the ability to act against the the total range of metabolic disease and as a result how valuable it might be in a holistic context i I don't think i'd fully appreciated that before today and thank you very much for if for nothing else and there but nine other things but for enlightening me and hopefully some of our other listeners on that point because i think that's really important thank you
1: now back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, August 25th, when Jorn Schottenberg joins us to discuss cirrhosis, the disease, and prospects of drug therapy. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.